Well, hey, Baylife, thank you so much for joining us for Good Friday. During this service, we gather together to remember the central event of the Christian faith. On this day, in our place and for our sake, the Lord Jesus passed over from life into death. Augustine was a Christian leader in the fourth century, and in one of his sermons over 2,000 years ago, he reflected on the events of today, and in this sermon he says this, man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life itself might die. Today, we remember that the author of life was given over to the grave. And so wherever it is that you are tonight, wherever you find yourself, we wanna invite you this evening to remember the passion of the Lord Jesus and to worship in response to his saving work. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom, and all the ways of man Ooh, you were here before the world began
John 3.16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's a, a saying that familiarity breeds contempt and that can certainly be the case. I wonder how many high school friends have moved in together as college roommates only to find out that they can't really get along when they have to see each other 24 hours a day? Or how many road trips have really fallen apart at the Florida state line when you realize that your friend is great until you're stuck in a car with them? There is such thing as too much of a good thing. But there's another phrase that is less common. I'm, I'm hoping it makes a comeback. Famili familiarity breeds indifference. It makes us callous. Sometimes we can sit in front of something that is glorious for so long that it begins to lose its luster, not because it has changed, but because time has changed us and made us callous. And I wonder if that's not what's taken place with us when we hear the words of John 3.16. This is a portion of scripture that has been plastered across bumper stickers and wall plaques. It's been written in Sharpie across countless pieces of poster board and held high in end zones during Super Bowls. Maybe you've even memorized this portion of scripture in vacation Bible school. At the very least, you've heard it a thousand times. And maybe you even rolled your eyes as you heard me read it aloud a moment ago. But make no mistake, if this verse fails to move us, the problem is with us and not the scripture. The problem is that time has made us callous, or maybe we've never even understood what John was saying in the first place. So often, this passage is painted sentimentally. God so loved the world. Think about the eight billion people in the world and how much God loves each and every single one of them. But the problem is that that understanding fails to take into account the word that John uses here for world, cosmos in the Greek. When you read the rest of John's gospel, and then the rest of John's writings, the letters of John, and then when you read the book of Revelation, in almost every instance, cosmos does not refer to our planet. John uses world to describe something evil, not something sentimental. That's why Jesus can tell his disciples, don't be surprised that the world hates you. It hated me first. That's why John in his letters can say, don't love the world or anything in it. Because when John talks about the world, he is referring to the systems and the people and the powers that stand in opposition to God. So when John, in chapter 3, verse 16 of his gospel, says, God so loved the world, this should level us. Not because we think, wow, look at all of the people that God loves. Look at how many people God loves. It should level us because we should be thinking, look at what wicked people God loves. I suppose this idea of love is vague in our world today. Pop songs say that what the world needs now is love. We use that term flippantly. We love cheeseburgers and we love our pets and we love our family and we love Jesus, but these words are not 
equivalent. What we mean by them is not equivalent. And so we can hear God so loved the world and still struggle to understand what that means. Kelly Capick is a Presbyterian theologian, and, and, and he does a great job of translating this text in a way that does justice to the Greek. He says the best way to translate this is not God so loved the world, but it's God loved the world in this way. Or even better, this is how God loved the world. In a world that professes to believe in the power of love but can't define it, beyond something more than a vague set of feelings or sentiments that are easily lost and found, Scripture makes the love of God a concrete event. The love of God is not ethereal, but it's substantial. It's not distant. It's incarnate. It's not an idea. It is a person that we can lay hold of. John doesn't simply say, God loves you. Can't you feel it in your heart? He says, God loves you and you can know this for certain because he has loved you enough in spite of your wickedness to give the gift of Jesus Christ to bear your shame and bring you home. So we read these stories of Good Friday and Easter. Maybe you've done so as you followed along in our Holy Week devotional. And on one level, we see the human action that's taking place. Judas betrays Jesus. A high priest turns Jesus over to Pilate. And Pilate hands Jesus over to the guards to be crucified. But Peter, on the other side of the resurrection, in his sermon at Pentecost, points to the religious leaders and he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, and then he goes on and says, was given over to you by the definite plan of God. Behind all of the human actions, behind the curtain, there is one action, a divine gift, a God who so loved this wicked world that he loved it by giving his only son to restore it and redeem it and set it right. And that's what Good Friday is about. Let's take some time now wherever you are, to pray and ask that as we continue in our time together, God would impress upon us this truth, that he would press it deep into our hearts. So let's just pray now. Father, we ask that you would remind us as we continue in this service of your deep, deep love, that you have loved sinful people so much and so tangibly that your love is as concrete as, is the body and blood of Jesus. As we continue to worship you, remind us of your deep love and cause us to love you more faithfully in return, we ask in Christ's name and we say amen. Every mouth is like an open grave searches for your face there are none righteous ones among all of us have gone astray but you came and gave yourself away you are the only 
gift it is. What a cause for celebration, but what a cause for reflection. What kind of love is that that would come to save a, a wicked world like ours? What kind of love is that that would sacrifice a son on our behalf? I read something this week that inspired what I'm about to share with you. I borrowed from a guy named Rick. I'm going to mess up his last name. I think it's Gamechi. But he's a senior pastor in a town in Minnesota called Burnsville. And as I was uh, praying through what I would share, uh, I just felt like God wanted me to share the story, in my own words, uh, but for us just to reflect on what it is that we've gathered around our screens today to remember. So here it goes. The Son of God waits bowed and bloody beneath the 100-pound beam that his captors have strapped on his back. He, he waits. The rough wood grinds against the fresh wounds on his shoulders, wounds left there by the Roman lashes uh, that he'd endured in the, in the hours prior to now. He, he can barely stand as his mind shifts back and forth between the pain of what's happening now and the dread of what's to come. He knows that things won't end with these beatings and humiliations. They, they won't be enough on this night of nights for his cup is being poured out and it will not be passed from him. The hours don't yet number 10 since he and his friends had gathered to celebrate the Passover meal, but the joy of that occasion, it seems like a lifetime ago. 
It was unlike any other Seder feast that any of them had ever experienced. Jesus had made sure of that. Those in attendance, they're probably uh, still trying to understand the, the, the full weight of what he had sought to teach them as he washed their feet. Uh, but, but then Judas, one of the disciples, he was abruptly told by Jesus to go and do what he must. As he rose to leave, Jesus had these parting words for him. It's better for you to have not have been born. Wow. Those are some jarring words. Uh, from a rabbi who only minutes before had knelt before this very man as if he were his slave. His disciples had learned to expect the unexpected from him. Uh, but with this, um, it was just a lot for even them to take in. Jesus was transitioning from humble servant to master teacher to all-knowing prophet to righteous judge, all in the span of just a few minutes. But then things got even stranger. Instead of the of reciting the lines prescribed by the traditions long tied to their feast, Jesus had taken the symbols that every God-revering Jew had handed down for generation after generation over thousands of years of their nation's history, and he just yanked them hard left into uncharted territory altogether. With but a few declarations, he altered for all time the meanings of the bread and the wine, telling his friends that these were now emblems of a new covenant, and that they should do these things from now on in remembrance of him. They had left the dinner table singing hymns before passing through the city gate on their way up the hill uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. There he had pleaded with them to pray with and for him. Uh, but the big meal and the late hour were just too much for them to overcome. And so naps were subsequently uh, had by all, all except Jesus. As was his custom, he found a solitary place to connect with his father. And as he, he knelt, he prayed a familiar prayer. He said, Father, be glorified in me, your son, as I follow you into what comes next. He spent the rest of his time praying for those 11 friends who were sleeping nearby and for others who would follow after them in their pursuit of Christ, asking that God would protect them and provide for them uh, in their lives in the days to come. His prayers had been so intense that blood had been pushed from his pores with his sweat, mingling together, staining the cuff of his robe as he wiped his brow. It was a dark foreshadowing of what was soon to come. His prayers had ended with the lines of torches that broke the darkness of the garden. His friend Judas uh, had arrived with soldiers in tow and with a simple kiss, the nightmare began. From there, his trials had unfolded, five and all, as he bounced from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, from corrupt Jewish leader to corrupt Jewish leader, until finally he came face to face with the ultimate authority in his region, a, a by-the-book Roman by the name of Pontius Pilate. The charge brought against him? Blasphemy. For it was well known that his lowly carpenter, or this lowly carpenter from Nazareth, claimed to be the very son of God. And so it was that at each stop, the abuse had escalated. Mockery and spittery, spitting gave way to blows to the face and yanks to his beard. Pilate had hoped to end the whole sordid affair by ordering the scourging that had made burger of his back, but the Jewish leaders, they just wouldn't relent. 
For good measure, the creative soldiers charged with his punishment had fashioned an iconic and ironic crown, a crown of thorns, and they had pressed it into his temples and hailed him as the king of the Jews, all the while striking him with blow after blow. But none of this would serve to appease the mob that had assembled. Given a choice of inmates to free, they had chosen a murderer named Barabbas over the miracle maker named Jesus. They chose a son of destruction over the son of God. His fate had been sealed by the washing of the governor's hands and all that remained was his execution, which is where we find Jesus now as he barely stands and continues to wait. Blood and sweat by now has stained uh, every inch of his garments, his gaping wounds surging with unspeakable pain at the slightest adjustment in his stance. His clothes will soon be pulled from his beaten frame and, and the ribbons of flesh now clotted to the cloth will be ripped with their removal. The agony is unspeakable and unending, but the worst by far is yet to come. So the son of God waits. He hadn't fared well in the march to Golgotha. The, the weight of the crossbeam had buckled his legs early in the journey, and a man named Simon uh, from a place called Cyrene had been uh, pressed into duty to carry it for him. That journey itself had offered cruel, uh, new cruelties uh, as jeers rained down on him from the same mouths that only five days before had hailed him as their savior and their king. Eventually, he arrived at the place of the skull. He was handed a cup of wine mixed with myrrh, a mild narcotic meant to dull the pain, but, but Jesus knew that he was meant to feel all the pain. So he handed the cup back, for it was not the cup the Father had prepared for him. And so here we are now. The time has come. The wait is over. Two men take hold of his hands, and they stretch them to the edges of his beam, the nails are placed under his wrist bones to prevent his body mass from pulling him down from his cross once it's set. In rhythm, they sink the spikes into his flesh like they had so many times before. They move methodically from his top end to his bottom, crossing his angles, ankles in front of each other and driving a longer spike through, spike through the arch of both of his feet. Secured in one place, he is raised to the sky to the position where he'll hang until he suffocates under the weight of his own body. The scene boggles the mind. In this and every moment, God the Father, Son, and Spirit is speaking all things into being. The soldiers, the priests, the thieves, the friends, the mothers, the brothers, the mob, the beams, the spikes, the thorns, the ground beneath him, the dark clouds gathering above him, all of it happens at the bidding of our Creator. Every aspect of this nightmare has been necessitated by the profound darkness of sin and the wrath that it incurs from a holy and just God. But this nightmare, as devastating and as dark as it is, it shines bright, like Travis told us, with the love and the purposes of God. He has long intended to send his only son to die that sinners like us might live. 
Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we might become sons and daughters of his. Jesus looks down at the soldiers who are now gambling for his clothes. He pushes himself up through the violent pain to pray aloud, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And then he sags back into a silence. But the crowd around him, they're not being silent. He saved others, let him save himself. If you're the Christ, come down off that cross. Save yourself, king of the Jews. The criminal on the cross to his left joins in that mockery, but the thief to his right, he repents. And Jesus pushes himself up to say to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's now high noon. Though it's hard to tell in the darkness that has settled over Jerusalem, his suffering has been unrelenting, and he can tell that he is nearing his end, but he is startled by an unprecedented sensation, one that he has never felt before in his human life. For the sin of the world is being heaped on him as he dies. And it's not just being laid upon him externally, it crawls up inside of him as it becomes sin itself for the sake of those who are lost in sin. The son looks at his father. And when his father looks back, Jesus doesn't fully recognize the eyes that he sees. In his eyes, the son sees the scorn of the father. Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between heaven and earth, filthy with his own human discharge on the outside, but now filthy to his core with sin on the inside. The son looks to his father and his father looks back. And when he fixes his eyes on him, the father speaks his judgment on this son who has become sin. He says, son of man, why have you sinned against me? And heap scorned on my heap scorn on my great name. You are self-sufficient and self-righteous, consumed with yourself and selfishly ambitious. You rob me of my glory and worship of what's, uh, and you worship instead what's inside of you instead of looking to the one who has created you. You exchange my truth for a lie, and you worship the creature instead of your Creator. You're greedy, lazy, gluttonous, a slanderer, a gossip, a liar. You're conceited, ungrateful. You're a cruel adulterer. Uh, you're sexually immoral, operating out my design for your physical expressions of love. With all your heart, you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother and murder him with the bullets of anger fired from your own mouth. You oppress the poor and ignore the needy. You love money and prestige and honor more than me or the people I give you. You put on a cloak of outward piety, but inside you are filled with dead man's bones. You are a hypocrite. You are lukewarm and easily enticed by the world. You are filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You blame others for your sin and are too proud to admit that you have your own. Worst of all, you choose not to trust me nor to follow me just like your ancestors, Adam and Eve. The list of your sins goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And I hate these sins inside of you. I am filled with disgust and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now, 
drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of the wrath of God's hatred of sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent, righteous anger unleashed for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future, all directed at this one man hanging on a Roman cross. The Father can no longer look at his beloved Son his heart's treasure, his very self. He looks away and Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence, separation. He has finished the cup intended for him. Jesus pushes himself up and musters the strength to cry these words, it is finished. And it is. Every sin of every child of God has been laid on Jesus and in love he has left the cup of God's wrath dry. And so now it's three o'clock Friday afternoon and Jesus finds one last surge of strength. Pressing his torn feet against the spike to straighten his legs, he musters enough air to mark his end. He says, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. And with that, the Son of God dies. The centurion in charge sees Jesus' body fall forward and his head drop low. He orders that a spear be thrust up behind Jesus' ribs, the, the last piercing for our transgressions. And the water and blood flow from his broken heart. It's in that moment that mountains shake and rocks split, veils tear and tombs open, taking it all in. The centurion drops to his knees and he declares, truly this man was the son of God. The wait is over. The price has been paid. The choice is ours to see our savior as he is the sacrifice for our sins, the chosen one of God given so that we might have life. And the hope that we have is this. Yes, he has died, but Sunday is coming. Do you feel the world is broken? Feel the shadows deepen. We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We Glory of the Lord to be the light within our 
I could read to you from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses, beginning in verse 1. It says this, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, the both of them together, and when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar and there laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, but an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of this place. The Lord will provide, as it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. Genesis 22 is one of the traditional readings for Good Friday. It is read in churches around the world every single year. It also happens to be one of the most troubling and traumatic portions in all of Scripture. For decades, Abraham had lived as a man with only the promises of God. God had first come to him in his younger days in Genesis 12 and had called him out of his home country, out of his way of living and into a new way of being. And God had made promises to Abraham that he would multiply Abraham's offspring and that in Abraham's descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. For decades, all he had were promises. No offspring to speak of and no indication that anyone would be blessed as a result of his family. He was nearly 100 years old when Isaac was born, when God finally made good on this promise that was held out in the beginning. And that is when God made this terrible request. 
Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Not simply a sacrifice, but burn him up until there is nothing left. Abraham had spent his life following this mysterious God, Yahweh, who had called him out of his home country, who had seemed so different from the gods of the nations. The gods of the peoples surrounding changed their minds, broke their promises, went back on their word at any given moment. Yahweh had seemed different, at least until this word was spoken. Funding Rutledge imagines Abraham's heartbreak and says this, in the command that Abraham slaughter his son, the promise of salvation for the whole world that Abraham had followed so faithfully for so many decades seemed to be revealed as nothing more than a passing fancy of the deity. It seemed as though God had abandoned his promise with consummate cruelty. When God first met Abraham, and called him out of his home country, out of an old way of life, God asked Abraham to cut himself off from his past. And in Genesis 22, with the command to offer Isaac up, it seems that God is asking Abraham to destroy his future. I don't know if you've ever gone through a breakup, and especially if you were the one who did the breaking. Maybe you reached the decision to end your relationship sooner than your partner. And something strange happens during that span of time. It's very rare that you settle on that decision and say something immediately. You may take a couple days or a couple weeks as you work up the nerve to break things off. But something happens in your heart during that time when you know that the relationship is over, even if the other party doesn't. You begin to untangle them from the web of your life. You begin to pull apart from them, and they may or may not notice it, but inside of you, they are as good as gone. Nothing more than a ghost standing in front of you. We're told that when God commanded Abraham to offer Isaac up, they had to travel for three days to reach the mountain where Isaac was to be sacrificed. And for three days... Isaac died in Abraham's heart. His son that he traveled with, he knew, was alive physically, but was as good as dead. As he ascended the mountain, Isaac asked an obvious question. There was a knife, there was a torch, there was wood for the offering, but no sacrifice. Where would that come from, Isaac wondered, and Abraham's response was solemn. The Lord will provide. It wasn't until the 11th hour that God intervenes with Isaac bound on the wood, with the torch in hand, with the knife hovering above his son. It was then that God spoke and cried out and called Abraham's attention to a ram caught in the thicket nearby. This ram would be a substitute. This ram would die in Isaac's place. Genesis 12 is the first time that God speaks to Abraham. And Genesis 22 is the last time that God speaks to Abraham. This is Abraham's final documented encounter with God in the pages of Scripture. These are the last words that God speaks to Abraham. And you can imagine that he spent the rest of his days wondering what had just happened. 
perhaps never fully understanding the weight of the moment that he and his son had just lived through. But in God's final words to Abraham, he shows how it is that he will make good on his promise to bless the nations. Abraham's life at the binding of Isaac becomes a parable. It becomes an echo of the events of Good Friday because on the mountain of Golgotha, another father will hand his son over to death. And for Jesus, there will be no ram to take his place as there was for Isaac. And for three days, much like Abraham's journey, Jesus will remain in the grave, cut off from the land of the living. But on the third day, there is resurrection. Just as there was for Isaac, just as Abraham received him back, so too will there be resurrection for Jesus. It is that resurrection hope that we look to now as we move from Good Friday to Holy Saturday to Easter Sunday.
I can't see you, but I pray that you're worshiping with us as we sing that song, that you're understanding just how profound that refrain is. There's no greater love than what we've been given in Christ. There's no greater love that someone would lay their lives down for us. There's no greater love than someone would become sin so that we might be forgiven of our sin. And I'm so grateful and in times like these, we can gather and just reflect on the faith that we're standing on, this hope that we have in Christ. It's all because he came, he lived, and he died. But as Travis so rightly said just a few minutes ago, he rose again. And because he is alive, we can be alive in Christ today. So will you pray with me now? Let's pray. God, I just thank you for this opportunity to remember, to reflect on what your son has accomplished for us in his work on the cross, for his saving grace. We are wretched, all of us, just lost in sin. And apart from you and your love and, and your son and his grace to us on the cross, we're, we're doomed. But you have given us life through your son's death. And you have given us um, a purity that is his and not one of our own. I'm grateful for that. I trust we can all be grateful for that. And I trust we can, um, as we go through these next couple of days, be ready to celebrate his resurrection together in our services to come. Uh, but even in this time of uncertainty, God, where the news is bad and the, and, and the, and the times are tough, uh, we can hold on to this hope that we have in Christ. Thank you for that. Continue to breathe life in us. Continue to heal us. Continue to provide for us, God. As a nation, as a world, lead us. 
but most of all, lead us to you through your son and our faith in him. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here, we would uh, just kind of play softly and then allow you to leave our, our room in silence, just contemplating the things that have gone on. But uh, as we close this time, here's what we've decided to do. We're just going to let the verses of Mark 15 kind of scroll down your screen. And you can just have one more time of reflection in the silence of your homes to just remember this day of days. Thanks for joining us. God bless you.